Well, thank you, Catherine. This was Catherine's debut today. And uh, you'll understand me if I say she wasn't the only one who was lifted up. I, I believe that she has led us very helpfully uh, into worship this morning and uh, has really set the scene for what we want to do as we carry on with our studies in the book of Genesis. And this morning we reach chapter 16 of our journey into the unknown. If you've been with us over the past weeks and months, you'll know uh, that this is where we've been. We journey with this man, Abram, a man who is following God by faith. He has believed God enough to leave behind his homeland and his family. He has trusted God through battles and trials that would probably have caused many of us to anticipate defeat, turn around, and go straight back home. But he didn't. Indeed, we find him two Sundays ago being assured by God that the promises given in chapter 12 would indeed be fulfilled in his life and that through his own seed, a son and heir would be born. And you'll recall that we looked at that great verse. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. Yet for all his faith and all his good deeds, Abram is still human. He is still made of sinful flesh, and there is still within him, just like you and me, that what wants to be set aside, that faith, and to do things our own way. There was a bit of Frank Sinatra in Abram, and there's a bit of Frank Sinatra in all of us. And more, much more than this, I did it. Oh, help me out, for goodness sake. My way. And if you don't know who Frank Sinatra is, go home and ask your grandparents. <laughs> Here's a slide you'll have seen before if you've been journeying with us. Christians lose their way. Christians do the craziest things. And Christians make unwise choices again and again and again. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 16 in our Bibles. It's page 16 in our pew Bibles. Genesis chapter 16. We're going to read the first four verses just now. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. If you come to these verses simply with our own particular culture in mind, you'll very quickly come to the conclusion that this is an incredibly immoral suggestion that Sarah makes. However, in that society, in Abram and Sarah's culture, it was considered a disgrace for a couple to be childless. In our day and age, many couples choose that lifestyle for themselves, and that's fine. Others have that choice forced on them by physical reasons, and that for many can be a very unhappy and indeed a very painful existence. In Abraham's day, regardless of the reasons behind it, if a couple had no children, 
they were mocked, looked down on, and largely were not accepted in society. That culture still exists in certain areas of the world today. For example, I'm aware of missionaries that I've been associated for many years who have this very stigma applied to them by nationals in the continent of Africa. But in terms of what Sarah was suggesting to Abram here in chapter 16, this was a very acceptable option. After all, God had promised them a child, one that would come from the seed of Abram. But ten years of waiting, ten years of no sign of that child appearing, leads Sarah to think, it's time I took matters into my own hand. It's time I did something about this. It's time I did it my way. So in verse 2, she says to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with Hagar. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Sarah draws a conclusion, conclusion that she has no right to draw. The Lord has kept me from having children. She makes up her mind very firmly that all this waiting and all this trying for a family is in vain. God doesn't want her to have children with Abram. So plan B needs to come into action. After all, God only said it would be from Abram's seed that a child would come. He didn't necessarily say that it had to come via Sarah. So at the end of verse 2, you find these words. Abram agreed. Now do remember that in the previous chapter, in verses 1 to 6, of the story of God's great promise to Abram, when the promise was given, Abram reacted in faith. But here it seems Abram begins to doubt. He, along with Sarah, decides God needs a bit of help in fulfilling his promise. For Abram and Sarah, God seemed a million miles away. Ten years away, in fact. And nothing has happened. And maybe you can identify with that. Maybe right now you have a situation in your life that makes you wonder, maybe even ask, where is God? Why doesn't he answer? Why doesn't he do something? A health issue, a family issue, an employment issue, a finance issue, a relationship issue. Maybe a decision that you have to take but there's no clear picture. Seemingly no guidance available just now to take that decision. And God doesn't appear to be helping you see what you should do. Can I say to you very lovingly this morning, please be careful. God's silence doesn't mean there isn't a plan and a purpose that will ultimately be fulfilled. And there are lessons that we can learn from Sarah about what to do when God seems silent. And one particular lesson is that when God seems silent, don't expect it to be easy. Don't expect it to be easy. Those ten years that Sarah had to wait for a child probably seemed like an eternity to her. It was so hard for her to wait on God. She knew she had said she would give birth. He, he said she would give birth. But it was driving her nuts to have to wait 
It was possibly making her feel inadequate to her husband, who no doubt she loved very much, but would love even more if she could provide a child for him. Don't be in any doubt. Dealing with God can sometimes be a very painful experience. Do you ever wonder? Do you ever ask why God is sometimes silent when we go through difficulties? Romans chapter 5 and verses 3 to 4, I think, are a great help to us in such circumstances. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance, or if you like, patience. And endurance or patience develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope in salvation. And James 1 verse 2 says something very similar. He says, count it joy when you experience trials because those trials come so that you may develop patience with God. If you're in the midst of a trial, allow yourself to ask God for help. And he freely gives help to those who ask Waiting time is not wasted time. But impatience and taking things into our own hands, as we'll see very shortly, has its consequences. Verse 4, so Abraham slept with Hagar and she conceived. Let's read on from the middle of verse 4. When she knew she was pregnant, she began, that is, Hagar began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah ill-treated Hagar, so Hagar fled from her. There are three people in this story, four if you count God. And all three participants in this fiasco, if you like, acted very differently. But notice that each of them had one thing in common, they acted badly. Abraham, by being unaccountable, he tried to pretend there wasn't a problem. And all you women sitting there thinking this morning, sure, all men are like that. He tried to pretend there wasn't a problem. And even if there was, it wasn't Sarah's problem. It was, sorry, it was Sarah's problem, but it's hers to deal with. He totally ignored his own responsibility in the whole situation. And many of us do the same or are tempted to do the same. Ignore our responsibility and simply pass the buck. It's the fault of the other party, not mine. And left unsettled and not dealt with, the problem grows and the problem festers. Not long ago we came across this truth as we looked at the life of David in 2 Samuel chapter 13. You'll recall that King David ignored the problem of Amnon and Tamar. And the problem grew until Absalom took matters into his own hands and killed his own brother. 
So whether there's a problem in the home, on the job, in the community, at school, or even in the church, it needs to be confronted or else it will get totally out of hand. Well, if Abram reacted by being accountable, Sarah reacted by being unreasonable. Sarah was miserable because of the pride and the haughtiness of Hagar. So Sarah tried to make everyone else around her miserable too. And the men are now sitting there thinking, sure, all women are like that. That's just to keep the balance, by the way. I have to go home today. But Sarah tried to blame Abram for the problem. Sarah tried to blame Hagar for the problem. And she even dragged God into the problem. In fact, Sarah's attitude reminds me of the old proverb, when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. You've heard that, I'm sure. When mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And you know, lo and behold, I discovered this week, there's even been a book written about it. When mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, 52 rules women want men to know. Seriously, though. There are many who approach the problems of life with a very similar attitude. If they are unhappy, they want everyone else around them to be unhappy as well. So they get grumpy, moody, mean-spirited, short-tempered, and almost impossible to live with. And we need to remind ourselves when such times come, and they will, that we are very far removed in those kinds of behavior to displaying the fruit of the Spirit that we find in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That fruit seems to go out the window when we feel we're having a hard and a difficult time. And we almost rewrite 1 Corinthians 13 where it says love is patient, love is kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it isn't proud, it isn't rude, it isn't self-seeking, isn't easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Abraham was unaccountable. Sarah reacted by being unreasonable. Hagar, well, how did Hagar react? Hagar, you'll find, was unavailable. Hagar decided that the answer to her problem was to get up and run away. She just packed up and left to get away from the problem. And do you know what? That's probably the most common response of all. When problems arise, don't seek a solution. Just get up and run. When problems arise in the church, don't seek a solution. Seek a new church, but take your problems with you. When problems arise on the job, don't fix it. Find a new job. When problems arise in the marriage, don't work it through. Just find yourself a new mate. Abraham reacted by being unaccountable. 
Sarah by being unreasonable, Hagar by being unavailable. But how did God react? Let's go again to our Bibles, this time to verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. Sarah, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. In verse 7, we have a very graphic picture. The picture of someone who is weary. Weary of the journey. And not just the journey from Canaan to the spring in the desert. Yes, she was thirsty. Yes, she was tired. But she was also damaged and hurting. She knew what she was running away from. She knew what she was leaving. She knew the impact that was having on her life, both at that moment and potentially for the future. And where was God in all of this? Well, God was there. God was there right beside her. God found her in her downcast condition, and he spoke to her. He spoke to her by name. And you know, that's incredibly important. Because that's more than Abram or Sarah ever did. Read these verses again and you'll see that they never once in this particular incident referred to Hagar by her name. To them she was a maid servant, nothing more, nothing else. And God asked her two very searching questions. Where have you come from and where are you going? Now remember, God knew her intimately. He knew her name. And by the way, he didn't have to ask her those two questions. Those questions were for Hagar's benefit, not for God's. He knew exactly where she was coming from. He knew exactly where she was going to. But God wanted Hagar to consider what she was running from and where or what she was running to. And I'm reminded of two other folk who found themselves in a very similar situation. One who found himself looking after sheep. Moses. Moses who had committed murder and who for 40 years was to tend sheep as he learned the lessons God wanted to teach him before taking him up and using him again and using him in a very mighty way. Another was Elijah. A man who had been so mightily used by God and then almost immediately found himself under a juniper tree, burned out, distressed. In fact, so distressed he wanted to end it all. He wanted to die. And folks, I find the Bible is so helpful, so honest, so encouraging. And allowing us to see that some of the great men and women of faith knew what it was to feel and yet still to be valued by God. So what did God do for Hagar? Well, you have it there in verse 9. God sent Hagar back 
to the family. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. And with that command was the added promise that he, that is God, would do in similar fashion to the promise he made to Abram. He would increase her descendants that they would be too numerous to count. And perhaps that's something you need to hear and consider from God this morning. Where are you? Where have you come from? Where is your journey into the unknown actually taking you? What part has God had in the decisions you are currently taking? What, if anything, have you asked from God? Where, if for anywhere, have you sought his direction? You see, at the very heart of this particular chapter, there is something terribly important. It's not a chapter many of us heard addressed in our Sunday school classes. Taught in our culture, Abraham taking Hagar and having sex with her is disgraceful, immoral, and sinful. But the actual sinful act in this story is the behavior of those who, knowing that God is a God of order and control, knowing that God, who is a God of sovereign planning and control, decided to take things into their own hands and do it their way. There is not one shred of evidence that God was ever consulted about the course of action that they were taking in this particular chapter. Nowhere in this passage do I find any reference to seeking God's will, seeking God's purpose, or God's direction being sought. And when God finds Hagar in the desert, weary, bruised, and maybe even broken, he says to her, turn around. Go back and submit. And can I pause there for a moment this morning and suggest that we take a very serious look at those words. About turn. Go back and submit. You see, it may well be that you and God both know where you're coming from and where you're heading. You and God both know that just like Abram, and not for the first time for either you or Abram, you've messed up. You and God both know there is ground to be repaired, issues to be dealt with, issues that need to be faced rather than ignored, relationships that need to be restored, wrongs that need to be righted. And you and God both know that you'll at best get stuck where you are if you don't take that step of getting back to where you came from. But you know, the Lord said something more to Hagar, and some of the most striking words we need to consider this morning are found from verses 10 to the, verse 10 to the end. Let's read those together. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. 
That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Ruah. It is still there between Kadesh and Berid. So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had borne. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. With the command to return comes this promise. I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. But isn't it interesting to notice that whilst that promise is very similar to the promise given to Abraham, there were significant added words from God to Abraham that were missing in the promise given to Hagar. Namely, all the nations will be blessed. That promise was reserved for the son who would be born to Abram and Sarah, not Abram and Hagar. And then we read the prophecy of Ishmael's nature. He will be a wild ass of a man, his hand against every man and every man's hand against him. Ishmael would be born. He would be a wild donkey of a man. He would live in hostility towards everyone. Not a pretty prospect, not a pretty picture. You see, these closing verses are incredibly significant verses. They cannot and ought not be ignored. And however difficult it might be to read them, it is even more difficult to refer to them. Ishmael represents the difficulties that arise when sin is allowed to divert us from God's plan for our lives. Remember, sin brings its own consequences. Consequences. Not a very popular word today. Indeed, there are those who today will challenge at this very point. They say that if God forgives, God chooses to forget or to not remember our sins. And therefore, there won't be any consequences. But this story and many other stories in the Bible provide us with a very clear example that we live with the consequences of our actions and our decisions. Sarah did it her way and in her time. And she ended up creating a conflict that still exists to this day between the Arabs and the Jews. A conflict that is distressing and vile and incredibly difficult to understand. And as a certain other gentleman would say who stands here on a Sunday morning, we're not going there. Card that I may be. I neither have the ability or indeed the time this morning to develop that. Because the overarching lesson I want us to grasp this morning is that Sarah had a surrogate plan to replace God's plan. And it all fell apart. Ishmael is a picture of what happens when we take things into our own hands and out of God's plans and promises. Galatians chapter 6, 7 and 8 is more than adequate as a commentary for what we're thinking about here this morning. Something has happened. If it will come up. I'm sorry. 
Okay, I'll, I'll read the verse. They should have been there. But anyway, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And that's often where we stop when when we quote those verses from Galatians 6. But I believe it would be a tragedy this morning for me to stop there at that passage and not read on. And to stop there in that story and not read on. Because if you read on in Galatians chapter 6, it says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And there are four key words in that text that are so significant. I had hoped it had been on the screen this morning, because right in the middle of that text are these words, At the proper time. And let me share with you why I feel those words are so significant in terms of our story this morning. If we leave this service this morning with only the final verses of this chapter grabbing our attention, then I suggest all we will see is failure, a reaping of destruction, a situation that only breeds the disaster it appears to end with. Between the verse 16 of chapter 16 and verse 1 of chapter 17, there are some 13 years. What must have been the atmosphere in that home for the next 13 years? Somehow I sense there could have been 13 years of strife, of disagreement, of bitterness, of jealousy, of heartache. I may be wrong, and if I am, please tell me. But I believe that in the coming weeks we'll be looking at some of the heartache faced by Hagar and Ishmael. But what about this morning? How do you view the story of Abram, Sarah and Hagar? How in the light of their story do you view your situation? Where is your journey taking you in terms of the unknown? And even more important question to that where are you in your journey with God this morning does the outcome of Genesis 16 discourage you maybe overwhelm you as you honestly face the place where you are with the choices you have made and you recognize it's all a bit of a mess do you remember this particular slide David has used it before. Failure isn't final. Do you believe that? And are the closing verses of chapter 16 the end of the story so far as Abraham and Sarah are concerned? Well, have a look at the first two verses of chapter 21. There they are on the screen for you. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abram in his, own, in his old age and there are the four words again at the very time not a minute before it not a minute after it at the very time that God had promised him 
What a gracious God we have. That has been the theme for the whole of the morning as Catherine has led us and as we've looked at those verses. This is where I really want to get to. Even when we doubt God's timing, even when we misread God's plans, even when in our egotism and our arrogance we do it our way, God keeps his promises. God fulfills his plans and God demonstrates his grace. Remember this, God always, always keeps his word. Hebrews 6 verse 18 tells us it is impossible for God to lie. Romans 4.21 says that God has the power to do what he has promised. And God always keeps his word. God is a God of order. And he doesn't run according to our schedule. Remember, men needed and watched for a savior for 4,000 years before he came. 4,000 years of waiting. That tends to put our waiting for the, the building, the planning permission in another perspective, doesn't it? But they waited 4,000 years. And in Galatians 4, verse 4, what do we read? But at the very time. God had promised. God sent his son. God always keeps his word. God is a God of order. And strange as it may seem, God doesn't need our help to accomplish his will. We may think that God's silence means that God needs our help to get things moving. Listen, God knows what he's doing. He doesn't need our interfering. doesn't need us to think we know better than he does. So for you and for me this morning, the question is this. God's way or our way? And I want you to keep that in mind as we use these words to close our service together. They are a real ministry in themselves as you think about the promises that God has given, not just to Abram and Sarah and Hagar, but the promises that God has given to us which are so numerous in his word. So from the breaking of the dawn to the setting of the sun, I will stand on every promise of your word.